Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 32. Paul, the apostle, writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures." Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their females exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their lust towards one another. Males with males committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper, having been filled with all all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the righteous requirement of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to its reading and to the message preached this morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here today. Uh, I bring warm thank you from our family, finding Oak Ridge uh, three years ago. It's been wonderful to find a home in a foreign land. And it's beautiful to get to know you people, make new friends, brothers and sisters. And it's, it's actually been hard that we've missed being here over these last two years. So it's great to be with you guys. And I look forward to meeting with you more in the future and getting to know you more. 
So Romans 1 was one of our texts, but I like to have more than one text. So could you please turn to Genesis chapter 3? Genesis chapter 3, we'll start at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will sharply increase your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. Through toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will yield for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your bread, until you return to the ground. Because out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let's pray. Our God and Father, bless us here this morning. You've picked a weak and foolish people. And if I could have it another way, you would speak to your people this morning. But you've picked a weak and foolish man to speak on your behalf. So Holy Spirit, may you guide Guide the preaching, guide our hearts, build us up. Amen. Amen. Cursed. Every one of you. Cursed. Every descendant of Adam and Eve. Cursed. The very ground you walk on. All nature, all animals, all plants, all creation, cursed. In recent years, you may have noticed it as well, I've been hearing people ask the question and exclaim, why is our current age decaying at such a rapid and tangible pace? Evil seems to be spreading like butter on hot toast. People don't know their left from their right, up from down, good from bad. And these are valid observations. Although not uncommon throughout the ages, as we look, things appear more grim. And so they should. The question rightly asked is, 
What is God's role in this decline? I mean, why does God allow evil to go on? But that question can be answered by another question. Who cursed man? Most of the time, people would quickly rush to the serpent. The serpent cursed man. Or it was the tree. Or man, man himself got himself cursed. Those are the genesis of the curse. But if we were to analyze Genesis 3, the one pronouncing curses is not Satan or Adam, not a tree, but is God himself. First, the cursed tree. A tree with a pronouncement attached. The day you eat, you shall surely die. You see, the result of eating that tree was the knowledge of good and evil and all that entailed. And the action of God was to cast off mankind upon his transgression, resulting in spiritual death. Instantly. And in time, physical death. This is a just and necessary result of sin and treachery against God. But if you're anything like me, thoughts may come to mind. How harsh. Man didn't stand a chance. Man fell and was cursed almost on his first day at work. But may I point out that although God does curse man, God's curses contain elements of grace. Because God's holy attributes, for there are many, with wrath, God is also good and merciful. You see, God did not uncreate man. He didn't instantly banish to him to hell eternally. No. God is generous with the now fallen creatures. The relationship with man and God changed at that point. Rebellion cleaved it. But imagine the terror if God didn't pronounce physical death on man. Imagine, although you can't, living forever, estranged from your maker, your very purpose of why you were created. Imagine feeling hollow forever, forever alone. Adam and Eve may have lived empty forever. And if God was even generous in giving them children, which is a blessing, imagine the world continuing on, children being given, sinners 
sinning against each other, ever multiplying, sinning against each other and God, infinitum. I propose that sounds like hell on earth. To bear the weight of sin with no end to its burden or its consequence. No, no, no. God is much too gracious. He grants mercy to man. Man won't bear the burden forever in this setting. God removes from man the tree of life. And God doesn't allow man to die. He makes him die. You see, I've talked to old saints in the sunset of life, and many of them long for death. My grandmother, beautiful Christian woman, toward the end of her long life, she longed to throw off her mortal shell, to pass over the river and no longer live under the weight of sin and suffering. A human can only endure life here under the curse for so long. And the bitter mercy of God doesn't stop there. At a merciful death, every day, every day, all of creation is not silent. It won't let us forget our state. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it will yield for you. And you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your bread until you return to the ground because out of it you were taken. The ground cries out against Adam and his posterity. Day in and day out. Work is toilsome, isn't it? For some less, for some much more. You see, not many of you may here be farmers, work the earth, but season after season, year after year, crop after crop, Plow, plant, wait, harvest, consume, start again. Animals born, animals grow, slaughter, consume, start again. Toil. I can tell you that each year in the hills of Taranaki, New Zealand, each year by sweat, hay enters the barn and hay leaves the barn. Sheep are shorn, sheep are slaughtered, year after year, decade after decade, century after century. And just as the croplands around here, toil is what moves them. And toil is what earns you the money to live day by day. Work is toilsome because God is telling you Fallen. Feel the weight of your fall. 
Thorns and thistles. Nettles. Buckthorn. And over here, you have it especially bad. You have a type of flying thorns and thistles. I, I believe you call them mosquitoes. <laughs> now, mosquitoes would have to be one of the most vile parts of the curse. Where I'm from, we don't have them. But they even make that cursed sound. That is mosquito ease for fallen. I feel sorry for you guys, I really do. Every time you stand on a thistle, every time you are plagued by nature, every time you suffer, the curse is screaming to all mankind, you are in trouble. Mankind's hand is set against God, and God's hand is set against man. And I would argue again, it is the very good nature of God to communicate how serious the standing before him is. I love how God paints in his redemption story. You see, the seasons. In New Zealand, we don't have fall, we have autumn. We, we call it autumn. I like the term fall, because I really think it hits it really well. You see, I love summer. I think summer is just the eternal state. Some of you may disagree. If one of you loves winter, talk to me afterwards. We can work out an exchange, because we're the complete opposite season to you. But Adam and Eve in the garden, they didn't need clothing, so I'm going to assume it was summertime, it was warm. And then came the fall, where everything turns and withers. Life fades. And then sets in winter, where everything appears dead and wrong. Even the softness of water becomes hard. And then out of that dark and cold comes the hope of life, spring. Things start to grow, and the promise of summer is remembered. That sounds a lot like what's after our age now, summer forevermore. Each season displays the beauty and majesty in God's redemptive story. Back to Genesis 3. There is even a beautiful element to the woman's specific curse. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. The woman right now are looking at me with some intrigue or disgust. Be it as it may, I was there for all my three children's births. I felt a lot of pain. I still have scars of memory 
my wife, she was on laughing gas, and she didn't sit, she doesn't really remember it, I do. Anticipation turns to panic. Fear that you may lose your wife and your child. Pain. But in that moment, I was reminded of something much bigger than me. You see, for in the curse of the serpent is the key to the curse of the woman. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, although these curses are literal to the ones being cursed, they are much more grand. The woman's offspring here is a singular he. Who is this he? Well, here is the promised child, the son to crush the great dragon. And through every age, up until that divine morning in Bethlehem, every child born through the ages, was this the offspring? Was this the promised offspring that would deliver mankind? You see, the woman in the largest view of this curse is the church. The very people of God. Through the ages, struggling. Always bearing spiritual children. Always enduring pain. And in Revelation chapter 12, there's the interpretive key to Genesis 3.15. Genesis chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and with agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she, was placed, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Skipping to verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth... He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's you. 
That's us. You see, the curse of the serpent and the curse of God's people are intertwined. Our great adversary and we, the bride of the dragon slayer. The woman's pain in childbirth is a reminder of the spiritual pain the bride of Christ will endure. And it's that very pain is how we conquer. If you look at chapter 12, verse 11... It says about God's people, and they have conquered him, the dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. To the Christian, there is beauty to the very curses that we still live with. You see, the unbeliever has much to fear and bear under the curse. But the believer knows its purpose. This reminds me, talking about curses, one time I was out sharing the gospel. I was at a protest. I'm not sure they even knew what they were protesting. But I came across a couple of young ladies. I decided to share the gospel and and she really had one for me. She said, I'm a witch. Okay, well, I grew up Pentecostal, so we were taught that witches are very scary. They can curse you, and you better be careful. This is serious spiritual warfare. Then I read the Bible more, and I'm very unsure about how powerful they are, especially compared to God. But she tried to throw me off on how great she loved her sin, I just endured on to share the gospel. Then I went on to share the gospel with someone else when she was obstinate and just not playing along. As I was sharing the gospel with someone else, she comes up and draws a pentagram with chalk on the ground with an arrow pointing at the preacher. Oh, dear foolish witch. You think such a curse can harm me? I was cursed by God himself. What can you do with chalk? And then God redeemed me from the curse. I have the Holy Spirit inside of me. A witch who thinks she can curse the people of God but doesn't even realize she's bringing even more judgment upon her own soul. Deceived. Blind. Much like where we find ourselves right now. We live in an age that seeks its own destruction. It appears that the world is hell-bent on defying God's law, head-on. In the nations that we both reside in, they seek to kill their children through abortion. To my shame, in my country, it is now legal for doctors to assist people who want to commit suicide. Complicity to self-murder. The symbol of God's covenant that he will not flood the world again is used as a symbol 
of pride. The pride of disregarding and disobedience to God's natural order and command. Which is the very reason why he deluged the place in the first place. The irony of it. Young and old now seek to masquerade as if Adam and Eve did not reflect the distinct gender roles set for them in creation. Cursed. I would put forward that to God's enemies, the curse of God is the most terrifying horror. You see, in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh, he tasted how bitter God's cup could be. When he wouldn't let God's people go, God took Pharaoh's evil and then strengthened him in it. God strengthened Pharaoh, not through one or two, but ten plagues that decimated Egypt. And then Pharaoh, after losing his firstborn son, lets God's people go. But because God had removed all sense from Pharaoh, he then pursued God's people as if he was going to kill them or bring them back to Egypt. So Pharaoh marched out his whole army between two walls of water as if that wasn't the worst idea in military history. Madness. Madness was upon him. This is why I laugh when I hear the idea of the power of what some people call the elites. You know, the elites in our society. Powerful may people be, but it's the very power that God has given to them. And these elites are momentary. Like all people set to expire. You see, God's check on any great man or woman, any evil man or woman, is the curse. Elites become obsolete due to the curse. And Nebuchadnezzar was a good case of this. So the king of Babylon keeps Babylon on, boasting in his pride about how wonderful he is and what he's accomplished. And God warns him to stop boasting. And then he boasts once more of his own glory, and then God humbles him. I love this story in the Bible. God takes King Nebuchadnezzar, his mind, and gives him the mind of a cow. Talk about not knowing what you are. For seven years, the great king of Babylon is out, probably in the courtyard, eating grass, messing the front lawn. Nebuchadnezzar lived as though he was a cow. And the great thing about it is God sustains his kingdom in all of that. No one offs him while he's roaming about Muin. Seven years. And then God goes, oh, you want to see how powerful I am, Nebuchadnezzar? You're the king again. God drove him mad. 
And as we look at our pride-filled, God-hating neighbors, are we to assume that God may not judge them in a similar way? You see, God doesn't have to judge like Sodom and Gomorrah. He may take our nations on a very rough path. And on that path, we will be spared. We are spared. But not without hardship. We live within the curse, but no longer under it. So in our day, Romans 1, I believe, gives the most clear explanation of why we see what we see in our nations. So if you turn to Romans 1, 18. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, the very wrath of God is shown to all who suppress the truth of God and his word. It is not partial. It is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And notice in verses 19 and 23, for what could be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is a strong argument that all mankind is not guilty in ignorance, but guilty in willing, knowledgeable defiance of the very God who made them and all things. They are without excuse. Mankind knows they are fallen. Remember, the curse screams to them every day. And to numb the pain and silence the sound, they exchanged the very glory of God for created things, images, foolish things. Notice the list of the decline here. They worship man, who is mortal, animals, even more detestable creatures, creeping, crawling, slithering ones. You see, there's no such thing as an atheist. All know there is a true God, and they hate him. And would rather run and hide and trade the haunting knowledge of him for folly. And here's the kicker, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And just in case the idea of God cursing the sinner escaped, the apostle repeats again, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up 
to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up the natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing same shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. These are visible signs of God's judgment on a people, giving them over, removing his common grace and giving them over to disordered desires. Verse 28 goes on. Once again, God gave them up. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That sounds like some of us, wasn't it? And the grace of God. But, if his grace isn't shown, God lets them go. Gives them over to a worthless, reprobate mind. A mind filled with sin. Consumed by sin. All because, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree. That those who practice such evil things deserve to die. They not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Why is the month of June the way it is? They know the law. They know is forbidden and vile. They know it leads to death. And death and judgment is what sinners deserve. And sinners do it passionately. You see, the sinner... We were like this. We know what this is like. We want others walking alongside of us on the road to destruction. Do we not? You get a lot more comfort amongst a crowd, hidden, the more the merrier. How uncomfortable it would be marching to hell alone. Why does the world encourage sin? Why is it promoted? Because not only is it their desire, it is their boast. The sinner wants it to be considered normal and considered right. Because they traded the glory and truth of God for their increasing curse. And that's where Romans 1 explains to us, to the church, that it is the very wrath and curse of God for him to hand the world over to greatest and greater sin and judgment. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God, my friends. If you were to pick an enemy, God would be the worst foe to pick. In Psalm 18, it states about God, with the purified you show yourself pure, and with the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. Now, it'd be wrong of me to assume that everyone in this room is a Christian. And I'm, I'm sure there is an unbeliever 
in this room who does not follow Christ. So speaking to the person here that is not a follower of Jesus Christ, I wish to warn you. You are cursed. And you are cursed because God is good. And you are not. You will live under the curse all the days of your life. And when you die, that curse will continue. And it is the very goodness of God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live, to die, who rose from the grave, to set you free from the curse. So I speak to you now, turn from your sin. Run from the curse into the arms of Jesus Christ. So what does this mean for the Christian? How are we to live in light of this? Do not despair. Oh, do not despair. When civilization crumbles around the church, do not wince at the judgment of God. The church is the light in the darkness. When the world seems like it's growing colder and darker, take great joy that the glory of Christ will shine even brighter. Oh, brothers and sisters, as a foreigner speaking to you, I can't help but see great opportunities for the church in the coming years. My American brothers and sisters, you know this nation not only probably could, but will fail and fall. But the church, the holy people of God, will endure. The church throughout every age is the outpost and garrison of the kingdom of heaven. You see, the church has always been the light on the hill, the prophet in the streets, the healer at the bottom of the hill. You know, the church has always lived on hostile ground, but she's never been extinguished. You are not only citizens of your respective country, much more you are citizens of a holy nation. And because of that, as the things grow darker, go with the gospel. Advance. The enemy is in front and behind and to either side. They won't get away. So on a tangible and theological application, Christ bore the curse for us on the cross, saving us. But although redeemed by Christ from the curse, Christians will still live within this curse. We still tread on cursed soil. We still decay in cursed frames. We still even strive against our fallen natures but we have been spared and delivered from the very worst of the curse. For we have been redeemed. 
and we have a renewed nature that grows in sanctification. And we have promised new frames, resurrected bodies, renewed minds and hearts. And we even promised a new uncursed land. As we finish, let me read a part of Revelation chapter 22, starting at verse 1. I want to tell you about the uncursed land. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. You see, in Revelation chapter 22, we have what happens in Genesis chapter 3 restored and renewed. You see, in Genesis 3 8, it said, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, God among the trees of the garden. Doesn't sound like the new creation, does it? But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? That floors me every time I read that. Where are you? God knew where they were. He wasn't looking around for Adam. Oh, no, he's lost. Where has he gone? Do you notice that Adam wasn't crying out, where are you? Man was not seeking his maker. Man didn't call to God. God calls to man. And what does he call to him? Where are you? Telling man his new position. Showing him he's lost. In the new creation, there is no separation. No separation of the curse. No separation between God and his people. Believer, did you know that right now, you're in greater communion with God than Adam was before the fall? Did you know that? Because God is not external to you like he was to Adam. God resides within you. The Holy Spirit dwells within you, Christian. This is a taste already. This is the spring before the summer eternal. God will never call to you, where are you? For you are in him, and he is in you. And at the new beginning, unlike the garden, God's throne will be there. You will always see his face. And his very own name will be placed 
upon the forehead of his blood-tied children. No longer cursed. In this new beginning, there is no cursed tree. In this new beginning, there is only ever for you the life-giving tree. Let's pray. Our God and King, what wonderful and great things you have done for us. We see your majesty and light all around us. So often, we're too ignorant to see it. May you build up your church in hostile times. Embolden your people. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. May we be that light on the hill to our communities, our nations. Make us strong. Give us courage. Amen.